0: Hey everybody, welcome back to Now Let's Be Honest. I'm your host, David Tate, and this is another episode in our ongoing series, Walking Through the Gospel of Matthew. I won't waste your time with any extended intro shenanigans, so let's get to our main discussion. Specifically, what we're going to be talking about today is Jesus' commandments regarding murder and adultery that you find in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 32, But in order to understand that, we need to explain the context once again. We are in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus began by giving the Beatitudes. And basically what Jesus is doing is he is just laying down the law for his people. And what he has claimed to do just in the previous verses, he is saying that he is not getting rid of the Old Testament law that you find in the first five books of the Bible. He's saying, I'm not getting rid of those. Rather, what I'm doing is I'm specifically here to fulfill them. And we spent the entire last video talking about exactly what he meant whenever he said, I am here not to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. And this passage right here is immediately picking up where that one left off. And if you remember, what Jesus was arguing is that the scribes and the Pharisees had been misinterpreting the law. And whenever they built a hedge around the law and they created a righteousness of their own, the righteousness that they created was actually one that was contrary to the law's actual demands. And so what Jesus is going to do now, starting in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, is he's going to say, all right, let's go back to the law, and let's see what the law was actually talking about. And let's see what the law was actually addressing. And the reason he's going to do this is because he's wanting to produce within his disciples the very thing that he said is necessary in the previous verse, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven. And he says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That is the primary issue that we have Jesus establishing as the problem at the root of the Sermon on the Mount. There is a righteousness being taught by the Jewish people at this time period that is not sufficient if you want to enter into the kingdom of God. And so Jesus is going to go into this sermon specifically countering that Pharisaical righteousness and he's going to begin with that right here and before we even jump into the text i just want to kind of give you my thesis and my argument for what exactly jesus is going to be communicating here what is that righteousness that surpasses the scribes and the pharisees righteousness and we talked about this a little bit in the last video that ultimately this righteousness is something that man cannot achieve in and of himself it has to be a righteousness that is received from jesus But Jesus isn't going to put all his cards on the table quite yet, right? Uh, Obviously, whenever you get to the cross and the resurrection, you're going to be like, wow, I see what Jesus was doing here. But ultimately, what Jesus is going to do in the sermon is he's going to show that despite the fact that man cannot attain this righteousness in and of himself, That doesn't mean that man does not have a responsibility to participate in this righteousness in this life, right? So we might not be able to be righteous in and of ourselves, but the righteousness that Jesus is going to talk about in the verses that follow is not a righteousness that is beyond our grasp in the sense of it's not something that should just make us lose hope and think that we can't actually begin to change our life now. Uh, A lot of times people make a misconception about the Sermon on the Mount, and they'll say that Jesus is taking the Old Testament law and saying that really it was only talking about internal realities, and it's not the external stuff that matters. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is going to give external commands that his followers can do in the real world right now that actually engage in this righteousness. And I think the phrase that we want to carry with us is the phrase redemptive righteousness. That is what Jesus is going to be advocating for in the Sermon on the Mount. It's a righteousness that isn't merely concerned with doing what's good and not doing what's bad, but it's a righteousness that is always actively seeking ways to bring about good even in evil situations. It's redemptive righteousness. It is seeking to redeem even the broken parts of the world. The way that Peter Lightheart puts it is this, It's a righteousness that, like God's own righteousness, intervenes in the evil patterns of fallen human life, a righteousness that takes flesh in the midst of all the perverse habits and cycles that shape the way we live and breaks them up from the inside, right? That is the redemptive righteousness that Jesus is arguing for and advocating for in the Sermon on the Mount. It's a righteousness that looks at the brokenness of the world and acknowledges the brokenness of the world and realizes that it's not enough to simply try to do good and try to not do bad. We have to actually find ways to restore Eden in the world around us. That is what Jesus is calling us to do. And he's calling us to do that by following in his Footsteps, right? That's why he gave the Beatitudes. He talked about the different types of people he's looking for in his kingdom people who are willing to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. That is what we are called to do. And we do that through the redemptive righteousness that he is going to outline in the verses that follow. And so, what we see um, just over the course of what we're going to talk about in this video and in next week's video is that Jesus is going to kind of have a structure to what he's going to do. Basically, what he's going to do is he's going to quote the Old Testament. And then he's going to interpret it for us, right? He's going to say, you have heard that it was said this, but I say to you this. And then he's going to give commandments that explain to his followers examples of how they can actually redeem negative situations. And one thing that I want to point out once again, because people often misinterpret this, is that Jesus is not contradicting the law. Whenever he says, you have heard that it was said this, but I say to you this, He's not saying the law was wrong. That's not what he's saying at all. Rather, he is clarifying a misconception about the law's implications that the people understood at that time period, right? That's an important distinction to make because Jesus literally said in the preceding verses, I'm not here to abolish the law. And so whatever Jesus is saying, whenever he says, you have heard it said this, but I say to you this, you can't say that he's trying to get rid of the law because the previous verses get rid of that possible conclusion. Whatever he's saying here has to be consistent with the law, and therefore he is attacking the perspectives of the law being taught by the Pharisees and the scribes at this time period. But what Jesus is doing is this. Jesus is actually putting himself in the place of God whenever he gives this whole formula for how he's presenting things, right? You have heard that it was said, you shall not murder, but I say to you, yada, 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 right? Well, you have to ask yourself, who was it who said that back when the law was given? It was God who gave the law, right? God is the one who gave the law to Moses, who then gave it to the people. So the person who first said, you shall not murder, was God. And so Jesus says, God said this, but I say this. And he's not contradicting what God says, but what he's doing is he's putting himself in the place of God and he is interpreting the heart of God to the people through interpreting the law correctly. So that's super important for us to understand because as we're going through this, we have to realize that Jesus is speaking with an authority that is going to baffle the people who are listening to him, right? So he's going to give the law's demand right? As God gave it. And then he, as the king, as the Messiah is going to give his command for the people in his kingdom. And then each time he's going to give examples of how you can actually apply this in your everyday life. Examples of applying this redemptive righteousness. And at the very end of this whole section, we're not going to cover this verse today, but we're going to cover it up next week. is he is going to say that this ultimately is the standard that people are called to live to you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. This is a reference back to the book of Leviticus where God says something very similar. And basically what we see is that the standard of righteousness is God's own righteousness. As God lives in the world, so too man is supposed to live in the world, right? God is constantly seeking to redeem creation. And the grand story of scripture is God's redemption of creation creation, right? You start with God creating man in a garden and placing him there in Eden in a place where everything is great. And then man breaks the world, right? Man chooses to embrace sin. And the rest of the story of the Bible is God redeeming creation. And that's going to come to a head in the gospels with Jesus doing that. And so just as God God upholds a redemptive righteousness, so too we are called to uphold our redemptive righteousness. And the first two ways we're going to see this is by Jesus alluding to the Ten Commandments, and he's going to talk about the Sixth and the Seventh Commandments regarding thou shalt not murder and thou shalt not commit adultery. So let's hop into it. Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be guilty before the court. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be guilty before the Sanhedrin. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way, so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last quadrants. All right, so here's Jesus' first example of interpreting the law correctly, and he does it by alluding to the sixth commandment where it says, You shall not murder. Right. This is interesting just from the perspective of how we've been looking at the story of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, how Matthew has been presenting Jesus as walking through the footsteps of the people of Israel, and where we left off at the end of Matthew chapter 4 was Exodus chapter 19, basically, with the people of Israel arriving at Mount Sinai. And then, here you have Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 going up a mountain and beginning to give the law. And the way that the law began in Exodus chapter 20 was with the Ten Commandments, and that's exactly how Jesus begins his Sermon on the Mount in distributing the law, right? He says, you shall not murder, right? Let's talk about the Ten Commandments, and let me begin to explain those to you. And ultimately, what Jesus is communicating here is that whenever God said, you shall not murder, he wasn't just talking about murder. Right? Ultimately, what God was talking about was anger itself, but he doesn't ever say here, you shall not get angry. Right? He is not forbidding anger here, he is forbidding unjust anger. And what he is actually advocating for is that our anger mimic the anger of God. Throughout the whole Bible, God is constantly being described as being slow to anger. Interestingly, the Hebrew phrase actually means long of nose, right? The idea is that God's nose is so big that it takes a long time for his nostrils to flare, right? That's the beautiful imagery in the Hebrew. Uh, But God is a God who is slow to anger, and that's what Jesus is advocating for right here. And this brings up another thing that I brought up back in the previous videos as we went into this, That nothing Jesus is saying here is new information, right? What Jesus is doing that is different is that he is speaking authoritatively about things that people already could have surmised about the law. And in fact, I think that you can actually go to before the law in order to understand what Jesus is talking about here. Uh, Maybe a really good way to interpret Jesus' entire commandment here is by keeping in mind the story of Cain and Abel right? Whenever you read about Cain and Abel, and remember, this is before the law was given. This is literally the children of Adam and Eve back in Genesis chapter 4. Whenever you see Cain killing Abel, that was not the first sign that something was wrong with Cain, was it? No. The murder simply sealed the fact that there was another issue. If you actually read the story in and of itself, you see that the first sign that something was wrong with Cain was that he was angry at his brother Abel. Because God approved of Abel's sacrifice and not of Cain's. And God doesn't simply get on to Cain whenever Cain kills his brother. Rather, God confronts Cain just whenever he is angry. And he says, Why is your face downcast? And he says, Sin is crouching at your door and you must rule over it. Right? So if you are actually reading the law correctly, Jesus is pointing out that it was never simply about murder. Murder is simply the end result of somebody not keeping their anger in check that is exactly what jesus is addressing right here so you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not murder and whoever murder shall be guilty before the court right so the law's demand when you go to exodus chapter 20 is you shall not murder but the heart of the law was never simply about murder it was about getting rid of all the things that ultimately lead to murder right yes the person who murders will be guilty before the court but a person who is angry will be guilty before his brother before it ever gets to court. And he'll be guilty before God, before he's even expressed that anger to his brother, right? That's what Jesus is pointing out. If you're simply concerned with not going to court, then we have an issue because you are simply concerned with a righteousness that is appealing to man and is living in the fear of man. You are simply wanting to do what is good and not do what is bad so long as it benefits you and keeps you out of jail or keeps you from getting the death penalty. Right? Jesus is saying, that's not the righteousness we're talking about. If your righteousness is simply focused on appealing to man and pleasing man and living according to the fear of man, then you have failed to understand the righteousness of God because the righteousness being taught by the law is a righteousness that is out of the fear of God and that seeks to live rightly before him. And you've got to realize that there are a lot of things that you can do that are not right before God that might not necessarily lead you to court. And so Jesus is pointing out that you have to look deeper. So he says this, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Whoever says to his brother, Raka, basically Raka means empty head or blockhead, right? The word just means empty. So whoever looks at his brother and says empty head shall be guilty before the Sanhedrin. And whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery, uh, to the fiery hell. What I want you to notice is the inverse parallels that Jesus is talking about here, right? Uh, And so you have... Uh, basically each of these things getting like lower in degree but the punishment is getting more and more severe so first the person is angry with his brother but then the person is just calling the person like basically stupid and then the other person just saying you fool right so basically just looking down upon this person right so it starts with anger which i would say is more severe and then you've got raka which is like okay you just think this person's dumb and then you say you fool which is basically like calling the person a fool and yes In different societies, maybe the full thing might be more severe, but I would say that these are actually going down in degree of severity. But when you actually look at the punishment, Jesus is saying that it's increasing in severity because God sees your heart behind it, right? So the person who is angry at his brother, he'll be guilty before the court because the court will get to see this anger played out. However, as you go deeper into the person's heart and you see that they are calling their person blockhead, well, they might be guilty before the Sanhedrin, right? But the person who says, you fool, right? That's probably not something that will land you in prison or anything, or land you in the court or before the Sanhedrin, but you will be guilty enough to go into fiery hell. That's something that the court and the Sanhedrin can't do to you, right? God himself. Oh, also just keep in mind, the Sanhedrin is the high court, right? So basically it's court, high court, hell. Right? So you have the court officials who are basically just any Jewish judge who could send you into some sort of prison sentence. Then the Sanhedrin, they are like the high court, right? It's like the Supreme Court of Israel. So they could give out some major sentences. But then the fiery pits of hell, that is something that only God can give out. And so you have this inverse idea where we typically would only begin to check ourselves once we get to that anger issue. But Jesus says it doesn't start there. You've got to go to the root of the problem if you want to address it, because ultimately you might not land in the people's court, but God sees your heart and you don't have to commit murder in order to go to hell, right? All you have to do is have a sinful thought that you allowed to linger because that fails to live according to the redemptive righteousness of God. And that's exactly what we see in the Cain and Abel story right? Cain, he thought his brother was a fool. He thought his brother was a raka. He was angry at his brother because he thought that he was wiser than his brother, yet God didn't approve. And ultimately, his anger at his brother was really fueled from an anger against God. And God called him out on it. And he said, dude, sin is crouching at your door. If you don't control this, you're going to be in major trouble. And sure enough, Cain goes on and he ends up killing his brother. And I think what Jesus is trying to communicate through all of this is that anger typically doesn't stay put. Anger has a way of just naturally escalating. And if it isn't dealt with early on, it could lead to worse things. Yes, you might simply think your friend is a fool, right? But in time, you might think he's so foolish that you think he is a rocker. Uh You think that he's empty headed. And in time, if you, don't manage, if you don't take care of that, you might think that he is so empty-headed and stubborn and dumb that you're angry at him. And then your anger might cause you to do something that lands you in the courts. And if you're not careful, your anger might lead you to do something so bad that it lands you before the Sanhedrin. And if you really do something bad, your anger might make it so that whenever you stand before God himself, he will say, yeah. You're not going into the kingdom of heaven. That's what Jesus is warning, right? If you don't take care of anger early on, it might lead to murder. So whenever the law prohibited murder, it was prohibiting something that the courts could give you the death penalty for. But ultimately, it was never simply concerned with murder because Cain was guilty a long time before he actually murdered Abel. And so, what Jesus is going to do, starting in verses 23 through 26, is he's going to give some examples on how we can active, like how we can actively um, conduct ourselves in a redemptively righteous way, where we are actively seeking to take this occasion for anger and offense, and we can use it, and we can twist it, and we can turn it in a form of redemptive action. Right? And that's something we've talked about. Every time Matthew uses the word fulfillment, there's always a twist to it. Right, Whenever Jesus says he's fulfilling prophecy, he's fulfilling it in a way that people might not have originally expected. Whenever he's fulfilling righteousness, he's fulfilling it in a way that people might not have originally expected. Whenever he's fulfilling the law, he's doing it in a way that we might not have originally expected. And now what he's doing is he's inviting his followers to also fulfill the law, right? He's saying, Hey, here's what I'm going to do. And now I need you to do this as well. And so whenever you see this opportunity for anger and offense, and whenever somebody does something against you, your natural reaction is going to be to call them a fool, to call them Raka, to get angry. But instead, I'm going to suggest that you twist it. And rather than using this as an opportunity to add evil into the world, You use it as an opportunity to engage in redemptive activity because that is what Jesus does. And so he starts listing some examples, and I'm not going to break each of these down, um, but mainly I'm going to draw the principles that we see in all of them. So he says, therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. I mean, if that doesn't talk about Cain and Abel, I don't know what it does, right? You have two brothers, right? Uh, And obviously the word brother here might not be talking about a literal brother um, because it's talking about just people in general. But in the context of Genesis, two brothers offering a sacrifice at an altar, one brother has something against the other person, right? Jesus says, go get reconciled. Uh, From a Pharisaical perspective... They would probably argue, well, no, offering a sacrifice at the altar is the most significant thing I could do. It's a lot more important for me to be reconciled between me and God than it is for me to be reconciled between me and my brother. But Jesus saying, but engaging in that redemptive activity in and of itself is an act of worship. Because what you're having to do is you're having to offer a sacrifice that is much greater than a lamb or a bull or a goat that you offer at the altar in the temple. The sacrifice that you're having to give whenever you go seek redemption with your brother and reconciliation with your brother is you're having to sacrifice your sense of entitlement to honor and you're having to willingly bear shame and reproach and rather than holding something against the other person, you're having to willingly step out and be the better person and you're having to choose to engage in this redemptive activity rather than escalating the conflict. In the same way, make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Basically, what Jesus is saying is that you want to handle conflict as soon as possible. As the Bible will say, you know, don't let the sun go down in your anger, right? If you're on your way to court with the person, try to fix the situation before you actually arrive at the courthouse. Right? See if you can handle it on your way there so that when you get there, you haven't actually escalated it to the point that the person hands you over to the judge and then the judge to the officer, and then you're thrown into prison. And the next thing you know, you're not going to come out of there until you've paid up the last quadrants. Right? There is a way to handle conflict that leads to more conflict. And that's typically how we like to handle things. This is typically the way that the human heart works. Somebody does something against us and we like to fight back and we like to make things more severe, right? That's why the Bible had to say eye for eye, tooth for tooth, which is something that Jesus is going to talk about later on. But it says eye for eye, tooth for tooth, because typically if somebody plucks out my eye, I want to kill them, (laughs) right? If somebody steals $5 from me, I want to steal a $100 from them, right? We like to make the punishment exceed the crime because we like to add evil to evil and eventually the whole world is burning because everybody's attacking one another. But Jesus is saying that's not how my disciples and that's not how my followers are going to conduct themselves. My followers are going to conduct themselves in the same way I conduct them myself and I'm going to willingly bring shame upon myself rather than holding every evil thing against the other person right? And this is what we're going to see personified through Jesus's life. He is going to be despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Yet rather than holding that against everybody, he's going to lay down his life for the very people who rejected him. And he's going to take their shame upon him, a person who deserved no shame, right? He is engaging in redemptive activity. And that's what he's saying his followers should do as well. And so if you're wanting to take principles away from this, how we as Christians are supposed to live in the modern world, I would say that there's probably three that he's approaching here and that he's talking about here. The first thing is that you don't want to escalate conflict, right? Um, People love escalating conflict, but Christians are not meant to be those people, right? Anger naturally escalates if it's not addressed early on, right? We want to address these things early on. You don't want to wait till it gets to murder right? You want to address it when it's just that, uh, that initial anger. Whenever you feel anger bubbling up inside of you, you have to ask yourself, why am I angry? And you want to be slow to anger, right? And you want to seek to not escalate the conflict, but actually to minimize the conflict. And if you see somebody in a situation where things are getting tense between you, you want to seek a way to get out of that, right? Rather than escalating it. Whereas naturally our pride gets in the way. And our honor gets in the way. And that's even more so in this original culture that Jesus is talking to. In an honor-shame culture like the people of Israel we're living in, honor gets in the way of that. And if you didn't defend your honor, you were considered a weak person. But Jesus says, who cares if they think you're weak? Don't escalate the conflict. Second thing you can take away from this is that you're supposed to choose reconciliation over vengeance. right? Naturally, our hearts seek vengeance. But Jesus says, don't do that. And if you're going to take vengeance you yourself bear that vengeance, right? Uh, This is actually what he's going to talk about later on when he talks about the eye for eye, tooth for tooth thing. But you can even see elements of that right here, right? It's not just about not murdering, right? You have to murder your own anger, right? And if you see anger arising in yourself because somebody did something against you or you did something against them, rather than feeding that anger, you need to choose to kill that anger, and you need to choose to seek reconciliation, right? Don't make it about getting what you deserve and getting what you're due and feeling entitled to honor and entitled to pride. He says, get rid of that, infer- like, get rid of that idea. Humble yourself and make your primary goal not to be right, not to be correct, not to be viewed as in the right or not to be reviewed with, to viewed with respect or honor. Make it your goal to reconcile with your brother. That should be your primary goal in any situation not simply being right. Because if your main goal is to prove yourself right, eventually you're going to land in court where you might end up murdering somebody. You don't want to go there. So firstly, don't escalate conflict. Secondly, seek reconciliation over vengeance. And then thirdly, choose shame over respect. This is key to the redemptive model of righteousness. Um, We love being respected. We love people looking up to us We feel the need to be respected, even in Christian cultures, like, I can't tell you how many Christian leaders I've talked to who will justify doing things because they need to maintain a sense of respect. That makes me kind of sad uh, because I understand it is a good thing to be respected. That's a good thing. Don't get me wrong. But it's not our job to make people respect us. And if you disagree with that, look to Jesus, Jesus showed up and he was the person who was deserving of the most respect in the world. Yet he conducted himself in a way that led to everybody despising and rejecting him and treating him shamefully. And he didn't say, Hey guys, I'm the son of God. You should respect me. Don't get me wrong. One day he's going to come back and do that. But the Bible tells us that vengeance belongs to the Lord, right? And God ultimately is the one in charge of who gets exalted and who gets put down. And we have a future hope that one day we will be, raised up with Christ and exalted before God. And so why do we live in the fear of man? And why do we feel the need to be respected by men? That's what Jesus is addressing here. And he says, you know what? Reconciling might require you to bear a little bit of shame. You might have to admit that you were wrong. You might have to just get over the fact that somebody did something wrong against you. That's fine. People might look at you and they might think you're weak. You might be afraid that people are going to treat you like a doormat. That's all right. Get over it. Go seek reconciliation. Bear the shame. Don't choose vengeance. Don't escalate the conflict. That's ultimately what he's getting at. That being said, let's move on to the next one. Verses 27 through 32. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. But if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body. Than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now some people will treat verses 31 and 32 as a totally separate section, but I think that it actually goes hand in hand with what he's talking about here with adultery. Now it was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So I think what Jesus is pointing out here is that adultery is something very different than what we typically think. In fact, you can, in many ways, commit adultery even before you're married, right? Because if you're looking at a woman with lust, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Um, and there's also ways to commit adultery even after you've been married um, through divorce. It is possible that divorce itself can lead to adultery, right? And that's ultimately what Jesus is communicating through this. Um, let's, I was about to say something, but let's just walk through it. Um, so he goes on from the sixth commandment next to chapter 20 to the seventh commandment, right? So it says you shall not murder. You go to the next one, you shall not commit adultery. And so he says, okay, if that's how you interpret murder, well, let's talk about Adultery itself. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, right off the bat, the first thing I want to highlight to you here is the role that the man plays in this and the role that the woman plays in this, right? Jesus is putting all the responsibility on the man. And don't get me wrong, there are other places in the Bible where it explicitly tells women to dress modestly, and it says that you should not be a stumbling block to one another. So yes, there are many places in the Bible where it clearly says that women do have this responsibility, uh, and men also have the responsibility to not cause the other person to lust. But ultimately, we have to realize that a person is always responsible for their own sin. To quote the book of James, right? Let nobody say when they are tempted that God is tempting them. Right? Uh, basically, what James is communicating in James chapter 1 is that you can't justify your sin by saying that it was your situations around you that made you sin. Uh, because in, when you're doing that, you're ultimately saying that God is the one who tempted you, because God is the one who is ultimately sovereignly in charge of the situation you find yourself in. Yes, that woman might not have, dr- like maybe that woman shouldn't have dressed that way, but God allowed that woman to be in your presence. And so if you're saying that just by being near her, you were forced to sin, well, (laughs) you're basically saying that God forced you to sin, right? And so James is like, no, you can't use your physical circumstances as an excuse for your sin. Should that woman have not dressed that way? Maybe. Sure. Yeah, she probably shouldn't have. And she is, but that's between her and God, right? Yes, she should not do that. And yes, she should try to take care of you and not dress that way either. But ultimately, Jesus right here is saying that you yourself are responsible for your own sin. And it's not just about committing adultery. If you look at a woman with lust for her, you've already committed adultery in your heart. And is he saying, like, is he saying that looking at a woman with lust is equivalent to committing adultery? I don't think so. Right? But what he is communicating is that our standard of righteousness needs to go deeper if you're simply concerned with doing the bare minimum guess what you might have a healthy marriage that doesn't isn't broken apart because you committed adultery but you're not going to be clean before god and you're not going to be entirely faithful to your wife right that's what he's communicating if you're simply wanting to do the bare minimum you're not going to have a healthy marriage you're simply going to scrape through without getting a divorce (laughs) right and he says that's not enough right? Yes, the Bible says you shall not commit adultery because adultery would be punishable before the court according to the law. But if you're simply concerned with doing the bare minimum, you have failed to understand the righteousness that's demanded by the law because the law says you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the law says you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If your goal is to simply not commit adultery, can you truly say that you're loving your wife as yourself? Do you want your wife Looking at all these other men with lust? No, you don't. And so you should love your wife in the same way you want her to love you. And you should try to not look at a woman with lust. And you have to specifically highlight the fact that it's looking at a woman with lust, right? It's the idea of the lingering gaze you have to realize sexual attraction is inevitable, right? It's not like once you get married, you're all of a sudden free from any sexual attraction to other people. And it's not like that sexual attraction only begins whenever you encounter your spouse for the very first time. Sexual attraction is an inevitable reality. Jesus is not saying that sexual attraction in and of itself is sinful. It's what you do with that sexual attraction, to go to Song of Solomon, right? Don't arouse or awaken love before it pleases. The sexual desire is going to be present, but you have to contain it just like you have to contain your anger, right? The idea is not allowing these impulses to get the better of you and not to allow them to escalate, right? It's a difference between seeing, oh wow, that is an attractive woman versus checking the woman out, right? Versus nurturing that sexual impulse and that desire. Also, once again, to quote the book of James, um, lust, whenever it's not controlled, leads to sin, and sin, when it's not controlled, leads to death, right? That's ultimately the trajectory of all this, and that's exactly what Jesus is arguing for right here. He's saying if sexual desire is not handled, it will become sexual sin, right? And if sexual sin is not handled, it will start in the heart and ultimately lead to the body. So, you have the sexual desire, right? You look at a woman and you're like, wow, that's a sexually attractive woman. (laughs) But then you start checking her out. And all of a sudden, you're committing adultery in your heart, right? Because you are choosing to gaze at this woman who is not your wife, whether you're married or unmarried, right? You're choosing to look at this woman who is not your wife and you are choosing to embrace the thoughts about her. And that's just in your heart. Well, if you don't get that under control right there, then you are not going to have a healthy marriage because that is going to create some strain between you and your wife. And eventually, if you embrace that long enough, it'll escalate and escalate and escalate and escalate until eventually it leads to adultery, just like anger unchecked leads to murder. That's what Jesus is communicating right here. Right? If you looked at a woman with lust, you've already committed adultery in her heart. No, it might not be equivalent to literal adultery. And yes, your wife is probably going to be willing to forgive you for looking at a woman with lust way quicker than she's willing to forgive you for committing actual adultery. But your goal, once again, should not be to just do the bare minimum. Your goal should be to nip the thing at the butt, right? It's to go to the root of it and address the root so that the whole plant can be healthy. And so, he gives you a remedy for this. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it's better to you for it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your whole body than for your whole body to go into hell. Okay. Um well, I don't think right off the bat that he is suggesting you should literally pluck out your right eye or pluck out your right hand. Um, I think what he is doing is he is using extreme language to demonstrate the extreme measures that need to be taken to oppose sexual sin. And once again, notice how he doesn't frame all of this simply in the light of um, if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out because it's better for you to lose your eye than for your wife to know that you gazed lustfully, right? He's not simply going there. He's actually going more extreme. Because he is saying, if you don't control this, then God himself, like God, God knows your heart, right? And God is the one who can throw you into hell. So if you are simply living according to the fear of man, sure, you might just try to do the bare minimum, not commit adultery. But if you're living according to the fear of God, you realize that God sees the adultery in your heart. And if you don't get that in check, then you might end up in hell because you have not repented. And if you have not amounted to the redemptive righteousness that is demanded by God, and you have not trusted in him and placed your faith in him, because instead you have been so focused on living according to the fear of man that you merely accepted the bare minimum of a righteous standard, right? You merely were like, oh, I'm not going to commit adultery, but I'm not going to seek a healthy marriage, right? And Jesus says, that's the problem right? You need to address the desire itself because the desire is ultimately what leads to the adultery. And sure enough, once again, if you go think about David and Bathsheba in the book of second Samuel, this is how it started, right? It started with a gaze and the gaze is what led to adultery, but it wasn't the adultery alone that was sinful, right? As soon as we see David gazing upon Bathsheba, the warning bells start going off on our heads and we're like, David, stop, 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 stop. Because we recognize inherently that adultery itself isn't the only thing that's bad. It's the lustful gaze. And so Jesus says, do whatever you can and do whatever it takes to get rid of that desire. Because if you don't get rid of that desire and if you embrace it and if you nurture it, eventually it will lead you into greater sin. And probably the greatest way that we can see this in our current culture is pornography right? Um, something that did not extreme uh, exist to even the, um, the it, like, it couldn't have existed to such an extreme degree back then, right? I'm not saying that things weren't pornographic back in that culture, um, but in our culture nowadays, we've just made pornography our entire lifestyle, right? You look at billboards all around you, you go on the internet, and a five-year-old can go google something and end up finding themselves on a pornographic website, because this is the culture we live in, And so we are more prey to this than any other culture before us. And so I think we need to take this very seriously. But then Jesus moves on into verses 31 and 32, and he addresses a similar issue. Now it was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. He's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 24, where Moses allowed for divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, there's some things that we need to clarify here. Um, Later on in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is going to talk about the issue of marriage and divorce again. I believe it's in Matthew chapter 19 or something like that. Um, But ultimately, we have to realize that Jesus is not contradicting Moses, right? Because Moses allowed for divorce. And in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is going to talk about the same thing. And he's going to say, yes, Moses allowed for divorce. But it was because of your hardness of heart that Moses allowed for divorce. Ultimately, God created man and female from the beginning to be together so that man would leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And therefore, what God has brought together, let no man separate. And so Jesus does make allowance for divorce just like Moses did. But both Moses and Jesus allowed for divorce while recognizing that divorce is never God's design, right? So if anybody looks at a situation where they find themselves in a marriage and they think that divorce is what God wants for them, I've got to tell you, it's not true, right? Divorce is not God's design. He does allow it. And there are certain cases where he will allow you to do it if that's really what you want. And it might not be sinful for you to do it, but it's never God's design for divorce to occur. And in that way, we have to realize that divorce is always tragic, right? And so by the mere letter right here, he says, yeah, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Um, But if you look at the Jewish people at this time period, different teachers were talking about, okay, well, what are reasonable grounds for divorce, right? You have some teachers, like I believe it was Hillel, where he would say basically like, if your wife cooks you food and you don't like the food, And you think that she cooked it badly, or if she just looked bad one day, you can divorce her, right? And Jesus is like, yeah, no, (laughs) that's not how we're handling this, right? The reason why Moses had this law is because it highlights the fact that marriage is a serious thing. You can't simply just break a marriage off. You literally have to go and you have to give a certificate of divorce and you have to go through the efforts of calling off this thing because it's a very important thing to God. And so the very fact that you have to give a certificate demonstrates that this is a binding oath that is being broken and therefore it should not be taken lightly. And so Jesus says... Everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery, right? So he says, unless this person has broken the marriage covenant to such a severe degree that you feel that you cannot actually stay married to them, then your divorce is illegitimate. And if you divorce them, you are actually committing adultery because you are breaking your covenant with your spouse, even though you're calling it. The divorce, God does not honor that divorce because God made this covenant. And if you are breaking it for reasons that he does not approve of, then you're actually sinning against both your spouse and God. And so Jesus, once again, is addressing the heart of it, right? A lot of the times people in a tough marriage, they will look for an escape hatch and they'll try to find a way out. And Jesus says that misses the entire point of marriage. Marriage is something that is not simply created by man. And it is not something that simply exists because pieces of paper were signed. God himself makes marriage, right? Whenever a man and a woman stand across from each other at an altar and they say their vows, God himself sees that and he seals those people together. And what God has joined together, let not man separate. God takes this very seriously. And so if you are breaking up and you're divorcing your spouse for any reason other than something that has broken the marriage covenant itself, Jesus says, then you're committing adultery and you might be leading somebody else to commit adultery with them because they're marrying somebody who technically should still belong to you and in the eyes of God does belong to you because you might have given them a divorce paper, but God might not have honored that divorce paper. And I think that through Jesus' command here, he's highlighting a greater desire in the heart of God because he's highlighting the same thing that we saw with the murder issue, the goal is always reconciliation. Even if the person has committed sexual immorality, is it possible that you could choose to bear the shame and forgive them? I'm not saying it's going to be easy, and I'm not saying that that is always the option, but I'm saying that is the ideal. Jesus is communicating here that divorce is never the design of God. Yes, there are times where he'll permit it, and there are times where he will accept it, and there are times where he will allow it, but it's never the goal. The goal is always reconciliation. The goal is always for marriages to be sustained, and the goal is for a couple to be married in such a way that divorce is never even an option, even if. One of the spouses commits such an atrocious evil that it seems impossible to forgive them. Jesus is saying, can you try? Can you try to reconcile this? And if you can't, that's fine. But can you try? Because if you're trying to reconcile it, then you are understanding the heart of God. Because what Jesus is highlighting throughout all of this is that divorce, just as much as lust, it feeds adultery right? Um, Just statistically speaking, people who have gotten a divorce are more likely if they get remarried to experience another divorce. And the more divorces you have, the more marriages you're going to have. And those same people are more likely to commit adultery. And it's more likely that their families are going to be broken by the divorces. And it's more likely that their children are also going to be prey to divorce and adultery. Because divorce is the shattering Of this beautiful thing called marriage and it has effects not just on you and your spouse but on your entire family and especially on your children and it teaches them certain values that are heartbreaking and once again I'm not saying that like I'm saying this as a person who comes from a family that has known plenty of divorce right my main thing that I'm highlighting here is that divorce was never the design and Our goal as Christians should not be to look for an escape out of marriage, but we should look for a way to reconcile no matter what evil has been done. That is always the goal. And yes, God will make allowances for it, but that doesn't mean that he wants you to do it. It means that he understands if you have to go through with it because you feel like that's the best thing to do. But he ultimately would love if you could do the same thing with your spouse That you're doing with your brother whenever you're going to sacrifice something at the altar you realize you have something against them and you get up and you go reconcile that is the goal for marriage. Ultimately divorce is rooted in hardness of heart. There's somebody one of the spouses or both of the spouses that are not willing to budge in something maybe that hardness of heart is rooted in bitterness maybe it is rooted in jealousy Maybe it is rooted in frustration or disagreements or unhappiness. I don't know where that hardness of heart is rooted in, but ultimately that's what the issue is. It is a person who is focusing more on their own self and their own concerns than on the marriage, right? Whereas really marriage, the two become one flesh. And so if you're turning inwards, you're actually breaking that marriage covenant in and of itself, and you're committing adultery of the heart (laughs) in a way by allowing that hardness of heart to manifest. And by allowing that bitterness to exist, you are actually leading to that divorce. And so Jesus, once again, is asking us to do the same thing in our marriages as he's asking us to do in our other relationships. Humble yourself and be willing to accept the shame. Maybe your spouse cheated on you. And maybe it's the hardest thing in the world to forgive them. God gets that and he understands that. And he's allowing for divorces if that's the thing that you need to do. But he's ultimately arguing that you don't need to do it, right? Because ultimately, you can choose to bear the shame. And I'm not saying it's going to be easy. And I'm not saying that this is a teaching that everybody's going to love. But I'm saying that it's the ideal. It's redemptive righteousness. It's something that seeks to preserve God's creation and to restore Eden and to fix the evils of the world. Yes, your spouse might have done something absolutely evil and wretched. So did we. Yet Jesus sought reconciliation. What if people looked down on me because of it? They might. Bear the shame. For the sake of love. For the sake of righteousness. Imagine that you did something that evil and then you were truly repentant and you wanted to fix things. Wouldn't you want your spouse to do that to you? I'm not saying this is easy. I'm simply saying that that is what Jesus is suggesting we should do. That being said, that's all I've got for y'all today. Once again, thank y'all so much for listening in. And I just want to remind you that if you want more biblical content like this, I have plenty more on the Now Let's Be Honest YouTube channel. Also, if you don't mind, leaving an honest rating and review for this podcast would be a super huge help for helping spread the word. Until next time, I've been David Tate. This has been Now Let's Be Honest. And I look forward to moving further along in our study next week. Be sure to keep a smile on your face and don't let anybody steal your joy. Maranatha.